Welcome to Electric Liberty Land here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land. I am the one and the only Brian McWilliams here to welcome you to episode 244. Yes, a momentous episode we all were looking forward to. I know you had it marked in your calendars, 244. A number, if you add it together, 4 plus 4 plus 2 is 10. And you guys, you're all perfect 10s. <laughs> I'm kidding, you're not. But anyway, welcome to the show. I'm going to have an awesome guest, Benjamin Powell, on in just a minuto. But before I get into that, I wanted to make sure that I tell you to check out our Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty. And of course, you can find all our bonus content there, all of my daily rants, my good morning fuckhead rants. You can find a new conspiracy corner that just dropped. Also, Degenerate Gamblers is kicking up, guys. And we're going to have, I think, a new fantasy sponsor for that show as well that you'll hear about tomorrow on Odie's show, Finding Freedom. But I also want to tell you, before we get into anything too deeply, about an awesome news story I'm very excited about, which is I Trust Capital. Now, you may have heard from of uh, I Trust Capital before. Let me give you a little homepage action here for them. They are a fantastic IRA slash crypto trading platform. So basically, you can get all the benefits, the tax benefits from an IRA while using crypto assets. Not only that, but also they have physical silver gold that you can also put into your account. That is amazing. What's even more amazing is you can use promo code LIONS to get one month free. Now, you might be asking yourself, all right, is it safe? Is it secure? Yes, it is. They're backed up by Coinbase. They're also backed up by Curve. They're backed up by $320 million of insurance. So your funds are going to be safe in that account. You're not going to have them go anywhere. You're going to be able to take that out later on in life and feel secure and happy with what you're doing. They're also very trusted. 1,300 reviews on Trustpilot, guys, to tell you these guys are not scammers. They're not doing anything that is below the line. And also, they're very transparent in their fees. And speaking of, you're also going to be able to use iTrust Capital not only for your retirement, but also if you're doing long-term gains or short-term gains, you can use them for the lowest transaction fees on Bitcoin and any of the other 22 cryptocurrencies they currently have. And they're adding more every day. So check them out. Do yourself a favor and do us a favor. Use that promo code LINES to get one month free. Your first month is free with them. And make sure that you get in on this now. Crypto is the future, and we want to make sure that you're not left behind. But of course, you're listening to this show. How could you be left behind, right? So anyway, yeah, check them out, guys. Excited to have them on board as a sponsor of the show. Almost as excited as I am to bring in my guest, Benjamin Powell, who, as, as you'll mention when I get into the interview, you know, we, we have our Patreon opportunity wherein if you join at $50, you, at, you basically get to produce a show. And Joy Morin had decided she wanted Benjamin Powell to come on here because she's a big fan of him and his work. Uh, Socialism Sucks, Two Economists Drinking Their Way Through an Unfree World is his book that he's going to come on and talk to me about. But you can have the opportunity to pick a topic of your own. It could be something like having us watch a movie. A lot of people have done that in the past. We watched Logan's Run on here at request. Uh, I think Maurice Jones had asked us to watch Bigfoot movies. You know, you could ask us to review a book. You could ask us really anything you want. You get to produce the show. So thanks to Joy for suggesting this topic and my guest today. And uh, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy it. So without further ado, 
Segway, please. All right, so I am here with Ben Powell, Benjamin Powell. He has actually been on the show before, back in the young days of Lions of Liberty, back in episode number 26, not with me. You probably forgot this. You probably just thought I went bald and I am still Mark Claire. But uh, but no, Benjamin Powell is back with us to talk about a book that I am fascinated by called Socialism Sucks. But before I get into that, let me give you an official intro- introduction, Ben. He is, of course, the director of the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University. He serves as a professor of economics at the Rawls College of Business and also a senior fellow with the Independent Institute and co-author of Socialism Sucks. Two economists drink their way through an unfree world. Ben, welcome back to the show. Cheers, Brian. Good to be with you. <laughs> and this and this is a drinking episode. We are doing a Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor edition of this, as requested by a, uh, a listener of our supporting listeners. If they uh, if they give us so much enough money, because you know we're free market after all, they actually can request guests. And uh, Joy Nicholas Morin had said, "You know what? I love Ben Powell. I think he has a fantastic way of communicating, of finding different ways to discuss topics that aren't these standard talking points." And specifically said she loves your book. So uh, what a perfect way to bring you back on, have a few drinks, and chat about the. Uh, the collapse of society. Well, we'll have to uh, try not to disappoint Joy, and uh, then I'll have to extract a side payment out of you afterwards. Oh, no problem. We can we can arrange that. So, by the way, what are you drinking? Ah, so uh, I have a beer here. And I'm not going to pull a Ron White where I don't see it in my koozie necessarily. <laughs> but uh, I figured since I was going to be talking a lot, uh, I needed something decently strong. So this is a Dogfish Head 120, 120-minute uh, IPA. Nice. So, that way there, I can still get, get some alcohol in. Uh, yeah. if, if, if need be, we got liquor behind too. Oh, no, well, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. If you need a shot, I came prepared. I've got my, my Hibiki. I actually finished up my Hibiki Suntory whiskey, which I love. Uh, Japanese whiskey, a blend that I find to be very smooth. And whatever Costco has that, I snag it. But I've also got some other uh, bourbons with me. I don't have a nice bar behind me like you do. I wish I did. My man cave hasn't been built out yet, but... You got a glorious setup there, Ben. And I appreciate it. It, it. it works well for uh, when I had to do online meetings over the last insane year and a half, because uh, <laughs> when, when they got boring, I could revert to cigars and liquor. Beautiful. Well, actually, that that raises the question: Is Texas Tech? Did Texas Tech go full Zoom everything? Did they do a hybrid? I mean, how's it been going over there for you? And also at Rawls College? No, uh, Texas Tech is uh, one of the best places to be a university professor this last year and a half. I mean, other than that brief period in March, April, 2020, when all universities were uh, virtual, we were we were back in business in the fall semester 2020 like oh, wow. normal. Well, not quite like normal, but with it, I was teaching in person. And for the Free Market Institute, we were allowed to have public events, bringing in guest speakers from around the country. You know, we just had to limit our audience and take some other precautionary measures that the university wanted. But uh, as, thing, as universities go, we were able to be... Uh, closer to normal than almost anybody else out there. That's fantastic. I would think for like business schools, and I always have to ask this because I was thinking, okay, in regards to the business school, probably you could still work in groups on different projects, get together outside of the classroom situation where you'd still work in person. Um, But yeah, like I said, you just never know. So I guess that was unimpeded. You're able to to do all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, you know, uh, there were mitigation measures that the university took, but unlike, you know, actually business schools, in other universities around the country that 
were 100% virtual or didn't have any extracurricular programming. We, we weren't like that. So I was fortunate to be able to conduct free market institute activities. We did a weekly research workshop with a visiting scholar from around the country all through the last academic year. And now this semester, we're back to almost fully normal, no masks, no quantitative limitations, no nothing. So looking and forward. No one's, the people aren't keeling over dying in the streets. Is that what you're, you're trying to convince me of this reality that we've been told is a, a lie? Well, I'm not talking about any of those numbers. I'm just talking about we could do our job here at, at, at Texas Tech. Amen. Well, I don't want to get you in trouble. So we'll stay on target here. Um, yeah, in regards to, you know, you're talking about people coming in, visiting scholars, and you, uh, a scholar yourself, along with the co-author of the book Socialism Sucks, is, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I went on a, a card, I got lost, Robert Lawson, there we go. I was going to try to show the, uh, the title of it real quick, but... You, know, you and Robert Lawson traveled around the world, right? Two economists drinking their way through an unfree world, travels to many, many countries. And I wanted to uh, to particularly hear about this because, number one, I was curious what your take was on the ground there. And like I said, I actually downloaded the book on Audible. I find I can't read paper books anymore with the wife and kid uh, at home. It's just impossible. I never finished them. So now I listen to them as I walk the dogs. But you traveled around the world. I'm curious to hear what your your thoughts were as far as what you experienced, then also what you think, and this is getting ahead of it, but just to give you something to think about for later in the conversation as we're both drinking, uh, you know, what you think a possible cure is for this disease of acceptability for socialism slash communism that seems to have overtaken the younger generation. Yeah. So uh, to not get ahead of our conversation, I'll certainly say that was one of the motivations for working on the book. Uh was the, you know, we started this project in 2016. And that's, you know, right on the heels of Bernie Sanders having a pretty popular presidential run. And for that matter, you know, 2016, if you think for a, a Lions of Liberty type podcast, 2008, 2012, the Ron Paul, the Youth for Ron Paul movement, yep. you get to 2016 and it's Youth for Bernie. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> uh, I, I get it that they're both anti-establishment, at least in rhetoric in a certain sense, but the, the policy reality is so much different. So, and then all, of course, the polls showing millennials and other young people who had an attraction to socialism. That was one of the main reasons for doing the book. The, the other reason was Bob wanted to go get drunk in Cuba and I wanted an excuse to write it off my taxes. Uh, and uh, we said, you know what, this is going to be a text chapter because this book is different. You know, we've written lots of scholarly, boring scholarly articles, particularly Bob on the boring part that few uh, <laughs> people read. And we said, we wanted to try to do different, something different, reach a broader audience. But, you know, uh, writing academic journals or even I write lots of newspaper columns that are, for, you know, normal audiences. But there's still an argumentative essay versus uh, a firsthand travel blog, like uh, log of a book. This uh, the, the publisher was originally calling this book the bastard stepchild of Anthony Bourdain and Milton Friedman, which is exactly <laughs> what we we're going for. But all of a sudden we're writing dialogue and colors and smells and shit. And I don't have any expertise in doing that. So we tried it out with the Cuba chapter and showed it to some friends and uh, friends who aren't academics and uh, with good feedback then said, all right, I think we can build up this whole project and let's set up this tour from around the world. And uh, that's what we did over the next few years. So we went, if I can do this in uh, chapter order here, we go through Sweden, Venezuela, Cuba, Korea, China, Russia, Ukraine, Georgia, and we end back in the USSA uh, by going to the largest socialist gathering in the United States to find out <laughs> what the hell's going on with, with these people. 
Where is the largest socialist gathering in the United States? My guess would be somewhere like Portland or Seattle, but I don't know for sure. I mean, it could be right here in California where I live. Your instincts are good, but we just need to wrap in a little history. Chicago. Uh, Chicago, Chicago over 4th of July weekend. (laughs) Okay. Now, is this, I mean, well, is this going to the Chicago School of Economics, basically? Is that the, the... No, no. Think of 19th century socialist movements in Chicago, Haymarket and stuff like that. So You know what? I, I forgot. I was just talking with somebody and I can't remember what I can't remember what the context was. Who told me that that for some reason, Chicago was where everybody went. All of these economic uh, economists were in Chicago during that time. And I don't know why. I mean, do you have any idea what drew them to Chicago of all places? Yeah, what? Well, uh, so we're talking. So let's just separate for your your viewers here. Two two separate things, right? So there's one. There's the late 19th century uh, socialist movement, labor movement that has a lot of people around Chicago, uh, mm-hmm. and of course, meatpacking industry, transport stuff like that. Then there's the more modern uh, early 20th to mid 20th century, what becomes identifiable as Chicago School Economics. Complete polar opposite, right? Is right. a more free market uh, economic school. Uh, two different dynamics. And actually, I really don't know why the Socialist Conference is still there. I'm speculating that it's the old 19th century socialist origins of, of the place. I guess I'll say maybe it's something like, you know, a, a protest movement that was so large that it grew into this thing. You know, I, I mean, who's to who's to know? But anyway, sorry, I interrupt you. Please go go through. I, I mean, I'm in particular. So you, you, you went to Cuba, you went to Sweden, you went to Venezuela. Where did you find? Well, number one, did you find the people there? were very frank and open about their situation and how they felt about the realities of the systems they lived in? Or did you find there was a bit, you know, <laughs> to, to reference, you know, Stockholm syndrome, was there a bit of socialism, Stockholm syndrome? Did they view it through rose colored glasses a lot of the times? Uh, no, but let's qualify this a little bit. So uh, Cuba is the one where we had by far the most interaction with, with normal everyday people in the, uh, tri- uh, everyday economic transactions, conversations. And you have to be very conscientious in these places too, because people can get in trouble if they talk about politics and uh, are mm-hmm. critical of the regime. Yeah. So we're relatively guarded in how we raise these things with people and instead of let them bring it up. But I'll tell you, overwhelmingly with the Cuban people, like we did not experience any anti-America feelings from average Cubans. Now there's billboards that, you know, show uncle Sam character with a big fist pounding him and shit like that, a propaganda out there, but your average, any of, I don't, I can't remember a single Cuban I interacted with on the Island who had any sort of obvious anti-American feeling. And in fact, when we went there, that was 2016, that was in that window where uh, Obama had just opened up a greater travel exception for more Americans to be there. Uh, we could have gone anyway for research as academics because it's not the Cuban government that prevents you. It's the U.S. government right. that makes it difficult. Uh, but, you know, I'll tell you, the, the best thing I heard from someone there was a university student. We were walking through the University of Havana, and uh, he said, he stopped us. He said, where are you from? And when we said the United States, oh, that's fantastic, he says. <laughs> it's great when people from the United States come because you bring a little bit more and we all know the next word in a poor country is going to be money, of course. tourism dollars, something like that. No, his next word was freedom. 
You bring a little bit oh, more. Oh, wow. Food. I'm surprised. I, I, I mean, I had heard that Cubans, it was almost like you can't, they told people don't attack uh, Americans, don't, you know, no, don't steal from because there was so much tourism dollars in there that everybody around Cuba said, don't mess with these people. They benefit all of us when they're here. So I'm interested. That's really interesting to hear that that wasn't the first thought. No, it, it surprised both of us. And it, it is true that uh, street crime for tourists in Cuba is minimal. It's very safe. Um, the, st- the state monopolizes all the crime in, in Cuba. <laughs> uh, so so that's one reaction. Uh, Venezuelans, of course, are, are, f- are fleeing their country en masse. And uh, most who I talk to have no delusions about socialism. Instead, it's much more like talking to Cuban immigrants in, in South Florida who are anti-communists. Uh, when it comes to North Koreans, I got to be honest, we have very little interaction with them. Uh, part of the rule of our wives when we were doing this book was that uh, we weren't supposed to get imprisoned or killed while writing it, uh, which jives with my re- overall. Can't they respect your ability as artists, though, and scholars? I mean, come on. <laughs> so <laughs> the way we did, and by the way, so like North Korea, they do allow Americans in, or at least they were, this has changed a little bit in recent years, but it, they were at the time allowing Americans in under special visas and you go on the official government tour in the capital where everything's managed. Uh, there's plenty of amusing accounts you can read about this. We thought about doing that, but listen, I run the Free Market Institute. Bob Lawson, my co-author, uh, runs the uh, O'Neill Institute for Global Markets and Freedom. Uh, and he writes the Economic Freedom of the World Annual Report. <laughs> it doesn't take much for the North Korean bureaucrats to understand that we're enemies of the state. So what we did there differently, we spent some time in South Korea, we did the DMZ, but then we went up to the northern border in China along the Yalu River with North Korea to the main trading city uh, where most of their international trade, uh, China's their main trade partner, uh, goes through. And we went up and down the river there. And we talked to people there. And uh, people who are North Koreans uh, in China, if, they're, if they have particular Chinese ancestry, they can be there legally. But most of them are very afraid of being identified as North Koreans there illegally because the Chinese government returns them to North Korea. Right. Where they, I, I think there's a, a thriving black market then for falsified documents of Chinese heritage, right? Well, there is essentially an underground railroad in China of missionaries who smuggle North Koreans out through China into Mongolia or to Vietnam mm-hmm. or other places where they can then make their way to South Korea and freedom. Uh, but it's not the type of people that are going to be easy for someone who stands out like me in Dandong, China, uh, right. <laughs> to approach an interview. We talked to some people, but they were very limited in what they were willing to say there. So that that ended up being more being on site to be able to write up the historical narrative of what what happened with the two Koreas. Because I mean, you know, we all know your viewers all what you've all seen. Your people have seen the satellite image, right, of North and South Korea at night where one's lit up like a Christmas tree, the other one's dark. And, you know, I've seen that for years, but what's striking, we got into Dandong, China at like, I don't know, nine o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night, something like that. Got to my hotel and look out the window and across the river, it's dark. There's a city of 300,000 people there. You don't see anything. You wake up the next morning and it's not skyscrapers like Dandong, but it's mid-rise buildings, about 300,000 that was not there the night before to your eye. Uh, Striking to see that firsthand. Hmm. Well, it's got to be, I mean, that's where it's, you hear stories of people that have made it across, you know, a North Korean uh, expats that have made it, that have found new homes. I mean, t- the two things that are surprising me is that there's not more stories, you know, talking about what they've gone through and so far as the dangers of 
communism becoming uh, you know dictatorial, which it seems it inevitably does, which is one of the lessons that seems to be ignored over time. But also, I've heard various stories about how they're treated in different cultures, like South Korea particularly, almost though they're you know they're treated. And I understand it as kind of backwater because their society is, but I'm surprised there isn't a little bit more compassion from a lot of South Koreans insofar as how they're treating these people. And like, look, thank God you made it. Let us, you know, help you. And let's not let's not uh, presume that this is a voluntary action that you live this way. You know, this is the world in which you can now become a functioning member. Yeah, highly recommend. So first of all, they should all buy socialism sucks. But after that, uh <laughs> Uh, Yeonmi Park is a courageous young woman uh, who escaped from North Korea, uh, and uh, she wrote a book, "My Journey to Freedom." Uh, has given many. She, she spoke at my free market institute at Texas Tech last year. Uh, highly recommend her book. Uh, you can also find her on our YouTube channel, uh, and she talks about the personal experience of being uh, smuggled accidentally and uh, finding herself in the, the sex trade in China, mm. and then making her way to South Korea and eventually to freedom in the United States. Uh, and she also more recently has messages for some woke Americans who think they're oppressed and what re- what real <laughs> oppression looks like. Uh, highly recommend checking checking her out for an account talking about the things you're mentioning, Brian. Yeah, well, maybe I'll check if I can uh, grab her on the show. I, I think I've heard an interview with her before, actually, on Michael Malice's program at one point. Um, so I think I'm familiar with who you're talking about. Well, let's move on. So what what are some of the more like these are the severe examples? Venezuela, of course, we saw become a severe example and. I'm not sure when you were there, um, the tragedy of Venezuela, a lot of times that the people holding all the power now, even water, you know, electricity, basic food or the military, it's the government um, in control of these things. So I can understand how dangerous it is for those people. So, OK, Let, let's do a, a few things on Venezuela, because even your informed uh, listeners and viewers do understand that it's, it's worth making sure we're on the same page about some things, because this is a big warning country, a country that was a successful, relatively rich democratic country and what so-called democratic socialism ends up being. So go back 50 years, 1970, Venezuela is in the top 10 countries in the world in economic freedom. It's the richest country in Latin America. It has an income per person higher than Spain, its former colonial uh, you know, colonizer. Uh, this is a successful country. Now, between then and 1998, when Chavez takes over and starts his Bolivarian socialism, they were on a long decline of uh, cronyism and declines in economic freedom that led to stagnation and a lot of bad conditions in Venezuela where they where they didn't keep up with what they had. Uh, that's your situation in 1998. Chavez is democratically elected. International observers, including former President Jimmy Carter, say as elections go, these things were fair there. He democratically puts in a new constitution, declares Bolivarian socialism. And in the 2000s, our Hollywood people here in the United States are all saying, this is successful democratic socialism because GDP was going up, infant mortality was going down, education literacy was going up, poverty was going down. And what people didn't understand at the time was that two things were happening. One, Venezuela's economy was being hollowed out. So Venezuela sits on the world's largest oil reserves. And during the 2000s, of course, we have high oil prices. But the Venezuelan government, by the way, socialism means something. It means government ownership or control over the major factors of production. Venezuela nationalized the oil industry and government run oil industry. Over time, 
production starts going down, people aren't doing capital maintenance, they don't have the same incentives as private owners. Uh, it, during the 2000s, with oil prices high and production still relatively high, sitting on these huge reserves, the economy is becoming a shell. Food production's going down, food imports are soaring. The government's basically using its, its money, its foreign exchange from oil to import everything that they need. Mm-hmm. Get to 2013, oil prices come down. And by that point, production in Venezuela is also going down. And all of a sudden, it reveals the shell that's there. Now, people will point to this and say, no, look, it was the oil prices that killed them. Listen, I'm talking to you from Lubbock, Texas. I'm an hour and a half from the Permian Basin. There was nobody starving in the Permian Basin when oil prices came down. Uh, because we actually had a functioning price system and capitalist economy behind it. Venezuela did not. And in fact, uh, scholars who have worked with, worked on this and actually tried to look at Venezuela's performance even during the boom, what they find is when you pre- compare it to counterfactuals of other countries producing oil and in the region, they underperformed. They didn't have as higher income as they should have. Poverty didn't go down as much as it should have. And this is all that hollowing out that was just being masked if you looked at the aggregate statistics. And then, of course, what happens And this, you brought up the, the connection between political liberty and economic liberty, not quite in those words, but in, in your mm. remarks a few moments ago. My free ramble. And, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, in, in Venezuela, it illustrates the... It's not so, you know, uh, some of your people who probably love Austrian economics and stuff like that. And Ludwig von Mises, the great Austrian economist, was famous for, for talking about the impossibility of economic calculation under socialism. But there's a, a different, and it's not quite an impossibility, it's just an improbability of maintaining democratic freedoms while not having economic freedoms. This is something Hayek points out in The Road to Serfdom, something Milton Friedman pointed out years ago as well, that it's hard to have a large degree of uh, political freedom without economic freedom. Socialism means some form of government control over the major factors of production. When you do that, necessarily the economic system is going to not provide the information or the incentives of a capitalist system that allow for increasing production. As a result, you get stagnation. But in political systems, when you get stagnation, you know, high unemployment, high inflation, this is a recipe to vote the bums out of office. But when you have government ownership and control, you've centralized the economic power and now you can punish dissent. So you've set up an economic system that's going to create dissent, but you've set up a system that can punish dissent. And invariably, socialist regimes throughout the 20th century and the 21st century choose to punish dissent when it starts to happen. So in Venezuela, uh, you see them, uh, you know, Maduro got elected with over two thirds of the vote last time. That does not pass the smell test when you have the world's second highest rate of inflation ever and like the average Venezuelan in 2017 lost something like 24 pounds. They didn't find Jenny Craig. They couldn't feed themselves. So, and meanwhile, you have millions of people fleeing the country. What was happening? They're, they're handing out food aid at voting stations. And if you vote correctly, you get the aid. Uh, uh, is that nice of them? Yeah. The employees at the state run firms are ordered to vote for Maduro or you lose your job. Democratic freedoms go away. So what was democratic socialism necessarily transitions to mere socialism? And this, Venezuela is the big warning one. Prior rich country, democratic, not a a military coup that put it in place. Same result. Sorry, that 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 was a long rant. I need to take a sip of my beer. No, I think that's, I mean, but, but it's things that people need to know. And I think that you look at, I mean, that is obviously the glaring warning sign, but you look at certain countries that have followed that path and kind of stopped themselves a little bit. Sweden is a good example, I think. 
if we can if we can diverge into that. No, you're shaking your head. I'm off base here because I was going to say in that you know Sweden. I don't. I still have problems with Sweden, but you know they made a lot of money. They went down this path of full socialism and then said, "Oh my God, we're going down uh, an, an even worse path here," and kind of reined it in, at least to my knowledge of it. So that now wow. it's free economically, but they still have some socialist benefits. So tell me a little bit about that and your experience there on the ground. All right. So our chapter in the book on Sweden is called Not Socialism, uh, because Sweden's not socialist, nor was it ever. Now, you okay. are correct about them reining it back from where they had gone, but they never went all the way socialist. So let's mm. uh, Sweden, you know, mid 19th century is dirt poor. They have laissez-faire reforms mid 19th century. They grow very rapidly by the mid 20th century. They're the fourth richest country in the world. So this is capitalism success. And by the way, the guy who was like the leading policy proponent of it was a big anti-prohibitionist too. So he was a pro drinker. Uh, extra bonus. As I t- as we then, both take a nice big swig. <laughs> yeah. Then in the 1960s, 1970s, Sweden starts putting in a big welfare state. And it still has a big welfare state. Uh, high taxes, lots of transfers, big social safety net, all that. They also have a lot of labor market regulations, you know, relatively high minimum wages and Mm -hmm. worker dismissal law type stuff. But if you look at the overall package of like capitalism versus socialism, you know, government ownership of the means of production. Volvo is a privately owned company. You go to the hotels, the restaurants in Sweden, they're all privately owned. Everything. Capitalism is the predominant way the Swedish economy is organized. So they have strong private property rights. They have good rule of law. They have sound money, very low inflation. Uh, they have very light regulation of business and credit markets. Mm-hmm. They have great freedom to trade internationally. On most of the metrics of like capitalism versus socialism, they're solid. Mm-hmm. They blow it on big government and welfare and taxes. And they blow it on labor market regs. But when you add all these things together, they end up being in the top 25, 30 freest economies in the world when you measure these. You can check out freetheworld.org for the, the Economic Freedom of the World Annual Report that weights all of these things together. My co-author, Bob Lawson, is the co-author of that index. So Sweden stacks up pretty well on that. It's not socialist. Now, what it did do is it got even worse on its welfare state taxes and regs, really slowed its growth, and then dialed it back a little bit. But it's still yeah. bad on those margins. Uh, and, you know... I think there's big problems with high taxes, a welfare state and labor market regs, but I just don't confuse it with socialism. And the effect in Sweden, by the way, is they went from that being that fourth richest country in the world, their growth rate slowed. They didn't become impoverished. They just stopped growing. Now they're in the bottom half of OECD countries, you know, the club of roughly 30 rich countries. They're in the bottom half of those because other people grew past them because they were more dynamic. So Sweden kind of got left behind. That's the consequences of big welfare state and taxes. By the way, it comes through in their beer. This isn't something that we've talked about so far, but the beer in the book, the two economists drink their way through the unfree word. The beer is a metaphor for how these economies function. In Sweden, it's delicious. You can get it from around the world, but like a Belgian beer that I love, uh, but, you know, not very far from Sweden, it's cheaper in South Korea on the other side of the planet because (laughs) the Swedes tax the hell out of everything. Uh, whereas like Venezuela, Venezuela, the beer production stopped because they ran out of it. Like they run out of everything. Right. Just like bread and everything else. That's, that's interesting. I was in Ireland and uh, Ireland, which has done some good things in the free market uh, and with corporate taxes, but still has quite a bit of high taxes at home and, and the same, I think some, uh, some labor issues as well. But I remember drinking Guinness in Ireland 
And it was not cheap. It was, I mean, just as expensive as anything else. And I went, what the hell is happening? Shouldn't this be like Bud? You know, shouldn't this be the cheapest thing on tap? And it was exceptionally expensive, like $11 domestic, American US transfer rate, like $11 a pint. It blew my mind. But let's, so I want to, I mean, we're, I don't, I want to, I know you have a, a time cutoff here. We have about 20 more minutes to talk. And I want to diverge into lessons, you know, lessons from the book as far as how we can reach the younger generation, you know, what you've seen there, what you took from the book and how you can convey that to the younger generation coming up. As you referenced earlier in the episode, you know, 50% of the, I think, uh, millennials or maybe it's Gen Z. I'm not sure exactly where it falls, but I think probably Gen Z, 50% of them are basically anti-capitalist, which is insane when they're living in the benefits of a free market society, but they've had this cognitive dissonance between the way they live and the economic system under which they have been sold this bill of goods. So what are your thoughts on that? Do we blame Sweden and how do we counter it? Yeah. So keep in mind, you know, part of this gets taken care of with aging, you know, the classic quote, <laughs> of, you know, if, you, if you're not a socialist at 20, you don't have a heart. If you're still a socialist at 30, you don't have a brain. Uh, <laughs> the Gen, the Gen Zers actually, I think are better than the millennials on this and they're younger okay. and coming better. Uh, but so what was interesting was going to the big socialist gathering. There was nobody my age there, almost nobody. It's people who were 35 and under and people who were 70 and older ex, ex hippies who haven't given up on it. The, <laughs> the, gen, the Gen Xers just weren't there. Uh, yeah. And within the younger people, then I wasn't there. I didn't argue with people. I wasn't there to give economic lessons. I was there to try to understand them. I'd ask them, what brings you here? What does socialism mean to you? Uh, things like that. And I can tell you a few different groups that you kind of identify with in that. So there's some that identify with socialism, but, you know, this is the classic, that's not real socialism. I mean, democratic socialism or some version of socialism from below, which the two different mistakes there is the democratic one, as we already kind of covered with Venezuela, they don't get the, the necessary connection between economic liberties and political liberties and that they're asking for an empty set. The socialism from below is even a little bit more confused, but because they talk, because they like, oh, I don't mean state socialism where the government plans your economy. I mean, from below where the workers and the people, you know, we plan it, we do it together. And I'm like, well, what, you know, like when the tire factory makes 35 inch tires and the rim factory makes uh, 20 inch rims, how do you reconcile the differences of these workers? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm like, <laughs> capitalism works. We use price signals that tell you what goddamn things to make to match up with one each other. And then you uh-huh. adjust in socialist systems. Once you get rid of the competitive price system, if you don't want autarky, which really collapses living standards and dies, someone needs to coordinate. It, and that someone is the central planning bureau. So they're missing like the, the whole process of economic coordination of once you get rid of prices, property rights, profit and loss as your way of doing it you got to get something else because your hippie commune ain't going to make an iPhone. Like if you're going to coordinate millions of people, you got to. Can I, can I jump on that for a second? Because I was asked this question. I gave a talk at the the Los Angeles libertarian convention recently. And I was talking about, you know, one of these problems is I, you know, trying to paint kind of left thinking as lazy, but then diverging. And and a younger student asked me, not a student, well, he was a student, but not my student, but he asked me, how do you reach people? You talk about the problems with, capitalism and how people view it how do you change their minds and like you're talking about with building an iphone there's that classic essay about how to build a pencil right 
Do you think it could be as simple as using the iPhone and saying, look, this is how these things work together. And it basically, could it dispel all their notions about how these economic systems would work by just proving to them how difficult it is to make that piece of technology that everybody is absolutely dependent on now? For some of them, maybe. I hope so. But not for others. <laughs> you seem too so, enthusiastic about the idea. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, listen, I'm an economic educator, so I spend yeah, all my yeah. time. <laughs> I know, you're on the ground. Uh, and, you know, I, I talk to my class about the divisions of labor, division of labor and things like this, and the, the coordinationist perspective of an economy. Uh, for some, some sets of those socialist people that will have some uh, attraction. For some others, maybe not so much, or maybe it'll move some of them from the worker from below to the Swedish model. Because that's the other thing that I encounter at the conferences, young people who are like, yeah, no, I mean, socialism like Sweden, because like Bernie Sanders and for that matter, Fox News. uh, So whether you're left or right, they point to Sweden and call it socialist. And the lefties are doing it to say socialism's not that bad. And the right's doing it to say you should really hate taxes. Uh, like that's not so socialism, but you know what, if it moves me from a socialism, from a below to a, Hey, I want Sweden. That's an improvement in terms of worldview. And frankly, actually my co-author has said this multiple times. If we're not talking to Americans, if we're talking to people all around the world, if the rest of the world looked more like Sweden, the rest of the world would become a much richer, wealthier, and more capitalist place. Uh, (laughs) You know, this is kind of a funny way to take this, but should we argue that we need more immigration to fight back against socialism? Because it seems like most of the people coming from these other countries are probably not going to be huge fans of socialism, right? Should we if we open the borders? Will we become less socialist, not more? So actually, you know, Brian, uh, you, you're you're pushing me in my direction in my latest book, which is called Wretched Refuse, The Political Economy of Immigration and Institutions. Perfect. Let's talk about it. Hey, look, this is, a, this is the libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor conversation. These things have no set boundaries. So the, the other book, which I, I'm guessing there's about five people that read both Socialism Sucks and Wretched Refuse. Uh, it's, uh, it doesn't have any swears or drinking and it has lots of regression tables and stuff, but it's I can taken- do an edit of that for you. If you'd like, I can add in a lot of swears. <laughs> that's probably, that's pretty much my forte. You know, when, when Regnery edited socialism sucks, they edited out a lot of swears. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> that's a different story. I could tell you. Uh, but, uh, basically we take seriously the question of whether immigrants would undermine our freedoms and other things that make Americans productive. And, mm-hmm find that uh, while it's a legitimate concern and one that people who are libertarian orientated for sure uh, would influence what their uh, their view is on immigration, we don't find much evidence that immigrants decrease freedoms and in fact often find evidence that they increase freedoms. And while this isn't proven by the numbers in the book, my own just drinking beer intuition is that there is a big selection bias. Mm-hmm. If you're picking up and leaving and going to another country in the world, you're not representative of the average beliefs in the country you're leaving. And America is still kind of a thing. If you're choosing America, you're probably more predisposed to that. Uh, Then we can get into more detailed public opinion survey data and stuff. But overall, uh, while I would say like Cuban immigrants are, uh, you know, an extreme tale of this of being the best anti-socialist voting bloc in the United States, there's an element of that same type of selection bias among other immigrants who come here. Yeah, interesting. Well, anyway, sorry, I interrupted your your uh, broader context. Heading back on to socialism sucking and uh, and reaching the populations as you're working yeah. with them. So you, you were talking about different sects. There were a couple of different ways you yep. said people are, are interacting, especially at the socialist gathering you were at. Yep. So there's 
the, the, the ones who don't understand political liberty and economic liberty, there's the socialism from below. There is then, and this is a lot of them that were there among the young people, they're identity politic people who have a particular issue they care about. They see something that's some sort of injustice or wrong in the United States. They're told about the aspirational goals of socialism, equality, mm -hmm. fraternity, no ending oppression. And they say, well, then I'm a socialist. <laughs> and it talking to, and it could be, it could be something about gender equality. It could be uh, 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 homosexual rights. It could be transgender. It could be Black Lives Matter. It could be immigration issues. It could be police violence. There's a whole host of them that you talk to about these people. And most of them had a kind of single one that was really important to them and then some other. And they just identified with the rhetoric of socialism, of ending oppression and creating equality. And so, therefore, I'm socialist. And then you ask them. So do you mean government like, you know, we have the government takes over Walmart? Oh, no, I don't think about socialism like that. <laughs> no, so government owning the companies are planning their car. Well, no, that's not social. Well, yeah, that I just, is. I, I, I just want more black people to have jobs or women to be paid the same. Although, so, I, I mean, oh, sorry, God. So you know what, though? I, I, you're, you're right in what you're, you're characterizing and saying that. I think this group is actually the most important for libertarians to talk to. So among that group, they're not economic socialists. And honestly, when they go down the list of things that they thought were injustices in the United States, a lot of them I agree with. Mm -hmm. I just don't think the answer is great, greater state power, that often the problem is state power. And for them, I think libertarians who you know watch the show, instead of dismissing them as naive young socialists, if you engage them and ask, what do you mean by socialism? And you hear that they like the goal, but then ask them, what's the problem? Just like, yeah, U.S. militarism is a problem. Uh, or yes, uh, police brutality is a problem. And then talk about how voluntary solutions and markets can address it. And talk means ends. And yeah. some of them, I think, are the best people for libertarian types to be talking to that could convert socialists away from their view. Then there's the worst. Of, there's also. Of, oh, sorry, God. Uh, go at, uh, well here but then there's the worst type the ones that we can't there are tankies in the crowd there's mm -hmm. people who actually mean state authority and when they say <laughs> i don't mean the soviet union they're full of shit they actually do mean the soviet union and that they would impose it on us in a heartbeat and they vision themselves as being the ones in control uh those guns are worthless but i'd say that they're a small minority of who i talked to at that conference uh that the three other categories are the most of them. Well, so. I was going to say regarding the center category that you're talking about, that's, you know, a lot of people have, have kind of stated a, a similar way of thinking. And it's almost reminds me of the old improv. I, don't know if, <laughs> I doubt you know too much about improv, but uh, the old saying in improv is yes. And right. Somebody goes with the concept and you say, yes. And rather than saying you're wrong or pushing back, because then you just have immediate pushback from them. Yes. And okay. Whatever you, whatever you have a problem with, I agree with you. And here's how we can solve it. Or, and let's add on to that and, and try to find a common ground to it. I also was thinking about this concept, um, which I may try to develop into a talk myself, but I want to get your opinion on it because I think it ties in. I was thinking about this lying in bed, not sleeping, which is that being right, which is something that I've in the past said, you know, we're right about so many things as libertarians, as free market thinkers, we are demonstrably right from the lessons of history. 
in that certain things fail, certain things succeed, mostly free markets of capitalism. However, it seems to be that we're living in an age where being right simply does not matter anymore. So do you think that we should abandon trying to remind people just how right we've been on things and instead abandon lessons of history and focus more on inspirational messages of our way of thinking that tie into, you know, uh, like you're saying, similar goals? Do you think that's going to be a more effective strategy for us? And I know Um, as a historian, you're like, well, I don't know, uh, an an economist. (laughs) But this is why it's a good question after we've been drinking. (laughs) Brian, I'm in favor of a thousand flowers blooming here because I don't think think anybody has the the correct theory of social change. And how it's like one thing that I've worked on at, at some points in my career of things that have social dynamics that lead to greater liberty. Um, I think though that, uh, you know, economists wearing blue blazers and white shirts writing white papers in Washington, DC is, is not the way to do this. In the end, yeah. uh, the average ideology, uh, the hearts and minds of, of the people are what dictate the thrust of the overall direction where, where the in-game politics and interest group, uh, screw us over on the margin. And if Americans were liberty lovers in the way that they were 200 years ago, uh, it's a vastly different thing that we have today. And meanwhile, if Americans had the ideology of your average Frenchman today, uh, it's something entirely else. And that some people respond to analytical arguments, some people respond to emotional arguments. Uh, I, myself, as a scholar, am in favor of making arguments that I think are, are correct um, and, that's what I'm saying. They don't seem to be working anymore. That, that's my problem. <laughs> well, well, that's why I curse and drank in a book while still making arguments <laughs> that I think are correct, but I made it more palatable for some people. <laughs> <laughs> well, amen. I'll drink to that. Cheers, Ben, to you. Um, you know, I, we're about it at, at our uh, our cusp of time here. So do you have any any last thoughts that you want to impart to my audience? And then also I'd ask you to tell them where they can find you, where they can read you. Uh, of course, I will link to your book, Socialism Sucks, as well as uh, the, oh, is it, it's Refuse, uh, sorry, Re- the name again? it's right off the Statue of Liberty, kind of. Wretched Refuse, the Political Economy of Immigration and Institutions. Thank you, uh, Wretched Refuse. Exactly. I will link to that and your Amazon link so people can download and find you. But where else should they go to if they want to read a column, if they want to find you on Twitter, if they want to follow and interact with you, where should they go to find you? And then your final thoughts. You won't find me on Twitter because that would probably get me fired if I actually use it. <laughs> I, 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 stay off, I stay off that. Uh, but otherwise, you can uh, BenjaminWPowell.com is my website. You can find plenty of stuff there. You can also find my columns on the Independent Institute website or just Google me. You'll find a bazillion videos and uh, people who hate me and people who like me. Uh, final thoughts on this. I don't know. You covered the the good stuff with the, the students and message of socialism. So here's what I'll do to, to end with, since this was your, uh, what do you call it? The living room and, and living rooms, drinking liquor. All right. So here's my, uh, my 60 second or less uh, alcohol as a metaphor for socialist economies related to this book spiel. <laughs> so Sweden, not socialism. You have a wide variety of alcohol, but it costs a fortune because they tax the hell out of it. Venezuela, they actually ran out of beer production because the government monopolized. Well, it's actually a monopoly company, but the government controls foreign exchange and they couldn't import hops. 
Uh, kind of need that for beer in Venezuela. It doesn't grow them. Cuba, there's two types. Bucanero, Cristal, they both taste like a Budweiser you left out too long in the sun. Uh, so no variety under socialism. North Korea, that shit's got awful. Uh, as my co-author put it, you hope it kills you before the state does if you live there. Uh, <laughs> meanwhile, in, in China, you know, Tsingtao and stuff like that's no good. But, well, it's, it's not bad. It's just like regular basic lager. But guess what? We felt, found a Belgian beer bar in Dandong, China, because they have international trade. So that still makes its way through. Uh, the, of the former Soviet countries, Georgia is beautiful. We never talked about Georgia. Great capitalist success story. No reform for 14 years with the fall of the Soviet Union. Now top 10 in economic freedom. Great wine growing region. They claim that wine started in Georgia. Uh, and uh, even, even the commie central planners grew wine in Georgia because they knew it was better than like Siberia for wine growing. Uh, but uh, they mass produced crap international grapes that weren't that good. And now it's all back to the hills and indigenous grapes. Georgian wines, wonderful. Exports are surging to the United States. Try that out. Well, I gotta, uh, I, now I got to try to find some Georgia wine. I'm really interested. Yeah, exports are way up in the United States for it. You can find it now. But none of the grapes, you won't recognize any of the grapes. So just try it. And the, the whites are like golden color because they press it with the skins and the stems. They age it in underground clay pots. Oh, wow, really interesting. Great, great stuff. So there, there was the quick rundown. Oh, and the socialist conference at the uh, in Chicago, the, uh, the hotel, the capitalist hotel knew their audience. They had on... Um, Revolution Brewery IPA on tap, which is a, a green handle with a big uh, fist and a red star on it. And uh, young commies are drinking it up. But the irony, of course, is that it's uh, Illinois' largest uh, independently owned brewer. So independently owned capitalist brewer. And it produces a greater variety and quality of alcohol than all remaining socialist countries in the world. <laughs> I love it. I thought you were going to say that it was bought by Coors like everything else. You know, it's like. No. <laughs> everything even my precious yingling although they partnered up i'm a i'm a pa guy so i can i'm finally gonna get yingling on this side of the uh the world out in la but uh we, we just got yingling in texas on monday and i was having oh, yeah. one just before i opened this when i sat down what did you think did you try that it's just the yingling lager the straight up uh normal version oh i've had it for years in different places but i had uh the yingling light because actually okay, yeah. it, you, it's a unique uh spot in the beer market at 99 calories but yet a colorful and flavorful beer. It's pretty good. It doesn't exist in that category otherwise. Yeah. Well, God bless Yingling. God bless you for coming on, Ben. Ben Powell, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land. Thanks for coming back to Lions of Liberty. And honestly, it sounds like there's much more for us to talk about. Um, and we just ran out of time today. So I'll have to have you on another time. If you're game to drink and talk more, I'd love to have you back if you're uh, up for it. And maybe we'll get into the liquor next time. I don't know, Ben. What are you feeling? All right. Cheers for now, Brian. We'll, we'll, we'll see what we got next time. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Ben. All right, guys, that will do it for me in this episode of Electric Liberty Land. I want to remind you to always subscribe to the show. Listen to Mark Clear on Mondays with the flagship show. That's what Ben was on. If you want to hear him, I'll link to the first show, episode 26, I believe. It might have been 23. I'll have to look it up. It was way back considering we're now on the hundreds and hundreds of episodes for the Lions Liberty podcast. But Ben is a, a champion of liberty. Check him out on those platforms. Like I said, I will link to his show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash episodes slash ELL244. I'll link to his books, his Twitter, his, uh, his books, his website, etc. And uh, otherwise, guys, listen to Mark on Mondays, John Odomat on Thursdays, and of course, I'm here every Wednesday. Otherwise... From me, Brian McWilliams, from the Lions of Liberty, and from Electric Liberty Land, always stay plugged in 
to Liberty.